Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Slate's Political Gab Fest is sponsored by the University of California, committed to creating solutions to today's environmental challenges. Learn more at universityofcalifornia.edu. The University of California, the power of public. And by PBS, presenting Wolf Hall, the new adaptation of the best-selling book series by Hilary Mantel. Catch this historical drama for a modern audience with Thomas Cromwell at the center of political intrigue in the Tudor court. Wolf Hall airs on Masterpiece on PBS this Sunday, April 5th at 10, 9 central. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for April 3rd, 2015, the So Who Can You Discriminate Against edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura in Washington, D.C. To my right is John Dickerson of Slate and CBS News. Hello, John. Hello, David. And to my left, but 450 miles away, but on a computer to but my that's left. That's just how far to your left she is. Is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. I saw Emily in her natural habitat at the New York Times Magazine this week. Oh, we really? ran into yeah, each other. Yeah, I looked at up the in Times. the cafeteria and there was David. Oh, yeah, that's when I got that weird email from you guys saying yeah. that yes. you'd been meeting without me. I dictate that email because he was having trouble so, typing it. Here's the thing I got an email from you while I was listening to you uh, for last week's show. Um, that's so funny. So that was weird. And another thing that's weird is um, the podcast app that I use to listen to the show allows you to down slow the speed down so which uh-huh. I'm which I was suge- which I was thinking of yes. suggesting to some whistle stop listeners who say I talk too fast but when you put you on the slow it sounds like you are either incredibly high or <laughs> like drunk and trying to talk to your parents when you've come home and they've caught you oh. it's just it's so damn funny you can't listen to a thing you're saying because oh, it's really funny that sounds perfect so if you're looking for giggles uh, just listen to us at 0.5 speed and it'll I think perhaps I feel like I would you. be a subwoofer at 0.5 speed. My voice is already low. Yours so might just, just be a constant drone. <laughs> On this week's Gabfest, uh, the Iran nuclear deal, which l- was announced literally seconds before we came into this room. So our processing, we have high processing speed, so we'll be processing that quickly. Then the uproar in Indiana and Arkansas, religious liberty or anti-gay prejudice, we will decide. Then the retirement of Harry Reid and the ascendance of Chuck Schumer. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, the furor over Trevor Noah should Comedy Central fire him before they've even hired him. And, of course, we have a live show at the Bell House next Wednesday night. It is sold out, um, but we can't, just came up with a great gimmick. So those of you who are coming... Why are you looking at me? You already oh, know what I know. the gimmick, the gimmick is. is. Well, I'm Donald sorry. You liked it. <laughs> I love the gimmick, but I thought you were, when you went from it's sold oh. out, but we came up with a great gimmick, oh. like, and I thought it had to do with the sold oh, out oh, part, no. like people You're were right. going to get to sit in You're drones right. or something. You're right. Okay. Sorry about that. Iran deal. John Kerry and Energy Secretary Ernie Moniz, who is my favorite government employee because of his intelligence and his amazing hair, hammered out a deal with their Iranian counterparts, the president announced it. Well, I guess the the P5 plus one and the Iranian uh, negotiators announced the deal on Thursday afternoon. The president quickly followed on with his uh, very forceful endorsement of this framework of a deal. And the negotiations, which had gone into double overtime, as everyone was saying, and passed their March 31st deadline, appear to have resulted in the deal that, that many people like me were hoping for and many people on the right and in Israel are fearful and very hesitant about. So the deal has a number of elements that we'll run through quickly. It was just announced, so it's things are in flux. Essentially, Iran will, will cut by two-thirds the number of centrifuges it's running. It will only run its most basic model centrifuge, about five to 6,000 of them. Is that right? 50, 50. 6,104. No, but only 5,000 some will run. They will have that many. 5,060 will enrich uranium will, for will 10 years. Uranium. Yeah. This is a sort of a 10 to 15 year deal in most places. There will be a, a plutonium reactor that they have at Ar- uh, the Iraq Iraq reactor, I think it is, 
that is the plutonium reactor will no longer have plutonium to be enriched there will be vigorous inspection regimen to make sure that Iran is keeping to the terms of the deal so that it's not increasing the number of centrifuges or using material it shouldn't have. Its supply chain will be be monitored. Um, what are the other? It can only enrich the uranium that it, it has agreed not to enrich uranium over the 3.67% for at least 15 years. So the key thing, just in terms of thinking about what the big goals of this deal are supposed to be, is basically how fast, if, if the Supreme Leader woke up one morning and said, I want to go for the bomb, how fast could he do it? And there, there. This is basically an effort to build lots of roadblocks in front of him. So the uranium he would have on hand wouldn't be enriched far enough, and the number of centrifuges, centrifuges he would need to spin it up to get it enriched wouldn't be there. Wouldn't be enough of them. And then, according to the president, these this will be the most robust inspections regime for any country in the world. And so, the minute he started trying to enrich, he would presumably be caught. And, and then the sanctions would snap back into place. That's yeah, the there's language. a lot of snap back into place But the place sanctions talk. are going to be lifted. And what I was not clear from, and maybe you guys, uh, in my quick listening and quick reading, how are the sanctions getting lifted? How fast are they getting lifted? When do they get lifted? My understanding, and again, as David pointed out, we're all just kind of figuring this out as we go along, is that the IAEA will do a kind of preliminary inspection. And if they certify that the preliminary terms of the deal have been met by Iran, then the sanctions will be lifted. So it's, it's I think the, it's a little fuzzy as yet, and those are some of the details they're supposed to work out by June 30th. Right. Well, that's and different. that's why it's not quite clear. Yeah. No. Well, that's well, that's different. Is that that's the bigger, that's a separate big problem, which is that this deal they've announced isn't really a deal. I mean, it's a framework for a deal that they then have to put in super specific language. And in the details, that's where it will get very, very complex and where everybody will be looking because, like, you know, that's where you could change some of these big top-line numbers we're hearing. And also, like, the this one facility that was a secret facility, I think it's the Fordow facility, yeah. um, that Iran used to say didn't even exist, but then through spying uh, the rest of the world discovered, they say, well, it'll now be a peaceful uh, nuclear facility. Well, what exactly does that mean and who gets to determine that? And that'll all be worked out in what has to be done by June 30th. Then after June 30th, the IAEA will make its determination. If they give it around a clearing bill of health, then the sanctions would be lifted. And now that's if the U.S. Congress votes to lift the sanctions, and then also if the U.N., I think, has to decide to lift their sanctions. But the U.S. Congress will not vote to lift the sanctions, presumably. So the president will suspend the sanctions autonomously, right? Um, I don't think the president has conceded all of that yet. He can can lift some, but I don't think he can lift the whole ball. I think he needs their help. But there is no chance... I don't. Well, Hell, that's that, that we should get. Yeah, we should, but we they're not in the that stance yet. I mean, the president, when he was speaking today, was forcefully imploring Congress to go along with this deal and lift the sanctions if all of the checks, uh, all of the check boxes get checked that John just laid out. Right, but is there any political? Is there any chance? Any chance that this Congress, two years before an election, a presidential election, is going to vote? to endorse President Obama's Iran strategy and lift the sanctions on Iran, the country that is that is perceived to be the greatest enemy to the United States of any country in the world, I think. It seems like the answer is no, but why is that? Is it because Iran is perceived to be the enemy, or is it because the Republicans and Israel's Bibi Netanyahu have dug themselves in opposition so far that they're not going to be able to climb out no matter what the terms of this deal are. Well, I think Israel, you rightly put the focus on Israel. I mean, it depends what the reaction from Israel is about this deal. And that'll determine- I mean, it will not- be negative. Like, I feel like if, yeah. you know, no matter what this deal says in it, Netanyahu has to slam it at this point. Right, right, right. And he, they've already made a statement. The Israelis made a statement which basically said, while you're appeasing the Iranians, the Iranians are sponsoring terror throughout the region and the world. Right. And right. I, I mean, so there, he, there's, there's no, no way. Yeah, he can't back down. And so I feel like the answer to your question about Congress is not actually about the kind of towering evil of Iran in the world. Not that its leadership is good. It's not. But it just feels like we're we're not talking about actual 
um, rational reactions necessarily, which is part of what the president was trying to warn against in his speech on Thursday. And he also on Thursday set up a pretty stark kind of view of things that's going to irritate not only the Israelis, but also Republicans and even probably maybe some Democrats who are who are friends of Israel. Um, The president basically basically said there were three options. Do a deal of the kind that they think they're moving towards. Have a war or have a war. (laughs) I mean, the third option was break off the negotiations, which would inexorably lead to a war. So it's not usually been the case when he says it's either my way or a third war in the Middle East that people not predisposed to believing him suddenly snap into agreement with them and they usually go the other way so that's likely to look i am a a huge fan of the fact they've made this deal i think it's probably iran's best friend i am iran's best friend but it is it is false to say there isn't a war there is a war the question is is there a war in which we are an active party there is a war going on between generally Shiite-aligned forces in this region and generally Sunni-aligned forces with extreme, the extremists are pushing it in both directions. And it's a, it's a huge, you know, struggle. It's a struggle at one level for uh, among, you know, trying to suppress fundamentalist forces of all, of various stripes. It's also a power struggle for the kind of Shiite bloc led by Iran, but also encompassing some of Syria, Iraq, some parts of Lebanon against a more a Sunni bloc, which is led by Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Pakistan, and which which wants to continue its general regional power there. So to say there isn't going to be a war is not quite right. There, well, is, there already is a war. So what the president just, was, but we're talking what, about what the different kinds of wars. Yeah, different, exactly. Yeah. Right. What, what he was talking about is a war to stop them from getting a nuclear war. Right. But, it, but I think we should. Right. But which I don't would think be a big, ugly, not the proxy war and c- continuous uh, skirmishing struggle you're talking about. We're talking about big, open, send all the missiles, send all the men and women, let's yes, all go die. Right, right. but that I don't would... think we should, I don't think this has much to do with general peace in that region. I think this has to do with a specific well, problem around Iran's nuclear ambitions and Iran's economic sanctions. It doesn't really have to do with the overall regional battle for power. And one of the interesting questions, and President Obama already talked about this, that he had already talked to the king of Saudi Arabia, but that w- how the Sunni governments of that region react to this is there going to be a saudi does this make the saudis more likely to be aggressive towards iran more likely to have a nuclear program the turks more likely to have a nuclear program or less right you've got three at least three audiences there's the congress israel and then saudi arabia and others that if they don't buy that this is a real deal then they'll start or they'll continue their nuclear weapons programs And, and israel not only will influence U.S. lawmakers, but, I mean, there are some people who worry that Israel, assuming from this deal that the U.S. no longer has its back, will go its own way militarily with, with Iran. Um, so, yeah, those are all And then don't we question. also have to think about whether this deal will entrench and empower the Iranian leadership, which we would like to see fall because we want to share David's idealized view of how the Iranian people really want different, better, moderate, unfundamentalist but leaders? Iran is a Iran is a complicated country. It has a leadership. It has a sort of top layer of leadership, which ultimately runs the country, which is theocratic and very dangerous and bad. But it also has a democratically elected government, which has significant actual power and has actual power of the economy and actual power over foreign policy, which is kind of government that we ought to want to work with. The government of Rouhani is a government that is, it's a, it's not an irrational actor. It's not like, they're not crazy pants. These are people yeah, who we can work with. Yeah, but the theocrats, like you said, are at the top. And we can't just like pretend they're not there. Yeah, but it's, it, it I matters. actually think that you that you have to, dis- you, you have to separate a government like Iran from one like Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia, the theocratic structure and the governmental structure are completely contiguous. They are one thing. In Iran, they're actually the governmental structure and theocratic structure are are different, and they have different influences. And while it's true that the theocratic structure has ultimate authority over the governmental structure, it is not true that they, it's exercised at every single minute or that they, these. But these, effectively, no, it's not effectively. But like, where's the line? Where's the difference? Line? We don't know. And our job is to kind of try to cultivate and 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 but encourage. But is it better to hope or better to assume that? What we've basically believed, which is that the theocratic structure has control over the governing 
direction of the country, specifically when it comes to national security issues. Is it better to hope and it's not the case? And then we have to worry about a deal that makes them more powerful within the country. I, I don't even get you the point you're making, John. Well, I guess even, it, the most dovish, they, they, even the most dovish people on our relationship with Iran don't think that the theocratic rulers like don't have control over the relevant issues in the context of this national but the, security But there's a difference between... They're not figureheads. Having, between have, they're not figureheads, but nor are they... In control of every single, they they well they allowed, don't they don't they allowed these parking. negotiations. That's true. These negotiations were hammered out by people who are elected by a relatively more moderate part of the population. And sign, you know, the the nuclear negotiator is a sign. The, the pro, did you guys read the profile of Ernie Moniz and the Iranian nuclear negotiator? It was a yeah. great story about the two of them, which he, they both are MIT buddies. MIT, or at least they, they weren't buddies, colleagues. but they sort of had the similar time. paths at MIT. Brilliant nuclear scientists. And they are able to have a discussion at a kind of technical intellectual level that was super important and actually useful and practical and was not something that had you sent a kind of religious hack who who doesn't know anything about the science could have they couldn't have had that conversation. They couldn't have gotten to the practical conclusions that they seem to have reached. And so I just think it's a mistake to monolithically say Iran is Ayatollah Khamenei and it is not the Rouhani government and the the, the kind of intellectual class of people who who represent a more moderate and represent more popular will of the country because they are but both But isn't there exist. a more nuanced set of questions? Okay, so let's say everything you're saying is true, although I think it it's probably a little bit is shaded. because I am true. Because <laughs> you are your own version of a supreme leader. Um, still, one wonders how this deal will play for the power of the theocrats because they're not – you can't just like pretend that they are not relevant to the discussion. They are. Right. I'm not pretending. I'm so just if Rouhani's government Ruhani's gets some credit for this, will the supreme leader – <laughs> may have a beer just like yours. Uh, also get credit, or and and will that? How is that going to play out in the larger Shia Sunni conflict? Well, frankly, if the moderating forces, you know, moderate the government of Iran and moderate the country and allow it to rejoin the community of nations, and that and the Khamenei gets to be the ruler of that, that seems okay to me. I don't know why you're so sanguine about. I'm him. not sanguine. I'm just <laughs> He's like a I'm bad guy. What does that mean to say he's a bad guy? It means that they they I pursue think it means a that set, they, sp- they, they spend a, a lot of their money they, on organizations that try to kill other people. Yeah, I think he that's, is sponsoring I think that's terrorism. not good. They're they, like they they're like one of the global sponsors of terrorism, which which exists to like go kill other people, many glo- of whom are, are Jews. A, they are a global sponsor of of activities that they believe advance their national interests, and they do it across borders, and they do it with people in other countries, and, and they're pursuing their national interests. Some of those pursuits with- are 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 bad, and some of them aren't bad, as is true with almost every country that has a foreign policy. Like that's that is true of Russia. It is true of China. It is true of the United States. It's true of most countries in the world that have an active military or or, or, or expanded military. We have, are doing, we have are broken doing the like bonds that. into the vast reach of relativism. Like all countries the same. Ah, whatever. Your the, narrative is your yeah, narrative. Seriously. Our narrative is our narrative. Let's I I find the the kind of demonization that it, demonization appears to me to be like the absolute least useful way of looking at countries that is possible. And so why not, not try to look at the why not country. try to look at Iran and it's how Iran pursues its national interests in the way that you would look at any other country pursuing so I think its national interests. Right. So I think people would say if they're pursuing their national interest and in the furtherance of that national interest, they spend a lot of money trying to kill people. It's not crazy thinking that if they got an ultimate weapon, they might put that ultimate weapon towards the purpose of killing other people, which they've otherwise been pretty engaged in for a pretty long period of time. So strictly on a real politic, national interest, following their history and pattern and example, it's not crazy to think, at least as a negotiating proposition, that they might behave in the future the way they behaved in the past. But John, how is it? How is Iran's going forth and killing lots of people notably different from, say, Turkey's, going, for, Turkey's going forward and killing Kurds that it perceives to be endangering its national interest from Israel going about, forth and, the, and killing Palestinians that it perceives the, to be against its national interest. The issue here is it's how a, to approach so, the Iranians, not like I know, but we we are able to. They're when the we, ones we're able whose to nuclear look capability is on the table right now. Pakistan, not the Turks, India, Russia, China. Those are nuclear powers. Israel, nuclear powers that do not always act in the 
in ways that we believe to be savory. And all we, of which is why they don't want the Iranians to get a nuclear weapon for because the Pakistani example is a perfect yeah, one. I was just thinking it about was that. like we trusted them. They're 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 emerging. They're doing okay. They're doing you know they're moving towards oh, a whoops. Western view. Whoop! Nope, no, no, no. That was damn, not, that, that, that was Pakistan snuck its weapon. It didn't that, right, it didn't get because, it because but because people because weren't we being vigilant, away, or at least partly. And Pakistan is very. I mean, I I do. Sympathize. I do feel like there is always something very strange about the United States, the whole P5 plus one team saying you can't have the bomb. We have it, but you can't have it. There is something like fundamentally strange about that. However, in terms of the world being a safer place, which was the goal that Obama kept trying to reinforce on Thursday, you do want to think about Iran in a multifaceted way, I think. And I feel like your way of thinking about it is... It, it, you're so, I mean, I get that demonization isn't useful, but I also feel like pretending that they are, you know, just like everybody else is also not quite right. I guess I don't think that that's what I'm doing. I guess I think that that I'm actually the multifaceted one and you guys are simplistic. But we can stop it there. The one the point I want to hit, the last, the last I like, final point. I hope point, you're right, by the way. The last point I want to touch on before we wrap this, uh, this negotiation session up is how – satisfying was it to have, uh, going back to Ernie Moniz and John Kerry, this kind of two-man uh, frickin' frack negotiation team in Lausanne with the Iranians, to have something actually get hammered out, yes. like through people just sort of sitting in a room, banging on each other, yeah. negotiating part personal relationship, part strategy, part like playing to a crowd, playing to the globe. Like, how great was that? Right, right. No, it's true. And because and, we are, we've become conditioned in both Washington and also with the Israeli-Palestinian talks to people staying up all night and then nothing happening. It's just totally collapsing. So it was a surprise to kind of think about like, Oh, hey, they, you know, who knows if it'll work out? Who knows if it's good, bad? But, like, at least we've become so shriveled in our expectations here in Washington. And, like, any kind of a damn result is is amazing. So I agree with you. Also, don't you like John Kerry ten times more than usual today? I just feel like he finally found his role and has become far less irritating in the process. Can I, before we reach escape capacity on this or breakout capacity on this issue, um, two things. <laughs> one year. This topic will go one on year. for exactly one, one year. 15 months. <laughs> uh, I've got two other things I want to add to the end. One is uh, it'll be interesting to watch the race among Republican presidential candidates to uh, lay down their markers. It tells us a couple of things. How fast can you lay down a marker before you know what the devil? What the hell's in the de- in in the actual deal? We've all said Surely multiple Ted times. Bruce has already denounced. Right, it. we've said multiple times on this show. We, we're not exactly sure what's in the deal. Our notions are pro- provisional, but we're not running for president. When we'll see how fast candidates speak about something that they can't possibly know about is the first. And secondly, will the threshold question be when you become president, will you undo this deal? Will you work to re- to replace it with sanctions? And just it'll be interesting to find out what that level is. And then finally, in terms of elections mattering and what can candidates say in elections. Um, think back to Obama and his fight with uh, Hillary Clinton in 2008, where one of the debates in the primaries was about whether he would meet and negotiate with Iran with no preconditions about a nuclear weapon. And this is the culmination. And that was very naive. The right? other thing that was portrayed that, as very naive. That's exactly right. That was portrayed as naive. And the other thing he said in the, in the debates about foreign policy was that he would go into Pakistan if he found out that um, did he say that if he found out bin Laden or did he say if they had a, a weapon? I can't remember which, but he said he would basically trample on Pakistan's uh, sovereignty well, if U.S. National- and so he did that. So here are two uh, items from debates, which are not always seen as the great illuminators of national policy. Two items from the debates that actually came and turned out to be true Plus as they Mitt played Romney out. Plus, Mitt was kind of right about Russia. Right. So that means more (laughs) debates. Everybody pay lots of attention to the debates. (laughs) So and then finally, the question for history is, is this a riskier move for Obama than his decision to kill bin Laden? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, much. Okay. Yeah. The GabFest is brought to you today by the University of California, committed to creating solutions to today's environmental challenges. Researchers at the University of California are working to lessen the dire effects of drought. Goodness, we learned a lot about that this week. By developing new varieties of crops that require less water to thrive. Learn learn more at universityofcalifornia.edu. The University of California, the power of public. And now for today's featured research. Who knew coffee could grow in California? Not I. Traditionally, coffee is an equatorial crop thriving not in Mediterranean climates like California, but in tropical countries like Brazil, Ethiopia, and Indonesia. Yet efforts by Southern California farmers to grow the beans have been brewing for a while. 
and the resulting caffeinated cups are meeting with critical and consumer acclaim. Is Golden State Joe the next wave in coffee consumption? The University of California's Division of Agriculture and Natural Resources believes it is. To read this story and uncover more groundbreaking research from the University of California, visit slate.com slash breakthroughs. In solidarity, we've canceled our planned GabFests in Indianapolis and Little Rock that we didn't. We canceled GabFests that were not going to happen. We have in had. Indianapolis and Little Rock. We have had several Multiple GabFests in, in Indiana. Indiana. I mean, I'm trying to think of another. Hey, they're fixing their bill. Now we should go we back. We should congratulate them and show up. Other than New York and Washington, is there another city? And other than West Lafayette is the third most frequented Gab Fest city, Is that right? true? Right? Yeah, we've, we've done, done two shows there. We did two Chicago, two San Francisco. Oh, we did two Let Chicago. Let it be known we oh, did not Sa- right. tell anyone yeah. we, they could not but attend right. the show. That's San Francisco, <laughs> you know, as everyone knows, the great threesome, San Francisco, Chicago, and West, West Lafayette, Lafayette, Indiana. So <laughs> I, it's hard to keep up with this. Story. There's so many fast-moving stories this week. This, this is the other one. Arkansas and Indiana's legislatures, of course, have each passed expansive religious freedom laws that critics say would give shelter to businesses seeking to discriminate against gay customers and maybe others. The Indiana bill was signed into law by Governor Mike Pence, who is now kind of frantically backpedaling in the wake of a national fury about the law from both progressives and from big corporations. And Indiana appears to be about to modify its law. Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, who initially said he was going to sign this bill, has now said he will not sign a bill that was passed by the legislature without it being seriously revised. So, in part because of Walmart, of all companies. Well, yeah, Walmart. Yeah, so we'll Wait, talk about Walmart. why it is why that is of all companies. Yeah. Um, so, so is this is the is the is the wave that, that arose against these laws? Is this just sort of smug, smug, coastal elite? moralism or is it a you know a righteous political crusade emily it's pretty righteous i mean it's a little bit random in a way that i don't feel like i completely understand as someone who's been watching religious freedom restoration acts and the politics of them for a long time but i find this so satisfying primarily because this turned into a super close reading of the text of this law and essentially two things torpedoed it One was that some clever law professors or legislators wrote into the law that it would apply in circumstances where there was a dispute between private parties. The government didn't have to be there. So most religious freedom restoration acts, certainly the federal one, say basically that the government isn't supposed to substantially burden someone's free exercise of religion unless the government has a really good reason and does it in the least restrictive means possible. And so the kind of standard lawsuit under one of these statutes is like the prison one before the Supreme Court this year, although that's actually a different law, but it's related, where there was a prisoner with a short beard. He said that was his expression of Muslim faith. The prison didn't have a good reason for telling him to cut his one half inch long beard. So we got to keep it. But Indiana wanted this law to protect businesses that don't want to provide services for gay weddings. And the sort of case that was out there that the Indiana drafters were responding to is called Elaine Photography. It's from New Mexico. And it was a photography studio that didn't want to shoot a gay wedding. They were sued. And the New Mexico Supreme Court said, "Mm, our state Religious Freedom Act doesn't apply here because this is a dispute between a business and an individual. New Mexico also has a broad anti-discrimination law that protects gay people. So that is different. Indiana doesn't. But in any case, there was this desire to protect businesses like that photography studio. And then everyone actually noticed that that had been added to the law and it created a lot of rage against the law. And it also made Governor Pence look like he didn't understand the statute or he was lying about it because he kept saying it was just the same as all the other ones. And then the other thing that messed up this law is Hobby Lobby, because the Supreme Court's decision in Hobby Lobby, which is also it's about the federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act, said that all of a sudden big businesses counted as having religious rights, this this kind of crazy idea. And so that also created much more breadth to Indiana's statute, to all the statutes than existed before. And people noticed. So it was like this. Usually all this happens in this kind of legalistic way that, you know, it feels like it doesn't really hit the public consciousness. And somehow it penetrated this time. 
John, is so so there was the, the the way this these laws were passed, and then there was this backlash, which sort of moved from left and gay activists very quickly to corporations saying, you know, boycotts, et cetera. But Republican, there were some Republican presidential candidates who kind of jumped in to support Mike Pence almost instantly and stood with these laws. Do you think this is going to be an issue that they, they are going to continue to stick with? You've already seen Jeb Bush sort of back away from his his stance yeah, on it. Are, are they going to are they going to move away from it? Well, I think it's the the some of the presidential candidate. Well, OK, hold on. Let's step back. If you look at the Republican coalition, blue collar, older white voters, that coalition tends to be the one that feels where there's the least support for same-sex marriage. But this is more than about same-sex marriage. The religious liberty piece of this goes to the evangelical wing of the conservative movement that cares just about being able to worship and see the tradition, what they see as the traditional values of American culture maintained and not destroyed by either the state or by just the advance of the sort of heathen culture. But there's also a there's also a sort of um, government intrusion, cultural intrusion on the on values that go beyond religion. So this is this gets at like a lot of the anger in um, or or upset and concern in conservative circles. What you often hear when you talk to voters when they say, you know, I want the country back that I grew up in. So there's a lot here that's big and and roiling, and Republican candidates do not want to get on the other side of that in a primary context. Now. Add that initial instinct to stick with the voters that are going to be voting in the primaries to what Emily discussed, which is most of them. And, and Jeb Bush was a little flip or a little snide in his first remark, which was, well, if you if you read the statute, you'd understand it's like the federal one. So yeah, he was wrong. sort of saying, you know, well, I'm you know, if you weren't such a big dummy and you had done your homework like I had, you would know that was his first remark. And then he said and then but he still sort of defended, as you said, David, he defended Pence and, and kind of told people to just kind of calm down a little bit. And it was smart of him. He was the first one to do it. And he's got the most people in that portion of the party who are skeptical of him. Now, as you say, he's he's reversing and saying Indiana's going to, the, the governor's going to get to the right position, which if the law was fine in the first place, as Bush had said, he would have no cause to get to the right position. So anyway, he's all over the place. Christie is sort of in the Bush position. I think this shows the tension, and Ron Brownstein has a, a great piece on this in National Journal, the tension in the Republican Party between the coalition that's going to vote in the primaries, which is this blue-collar, older, evangelical coalition, and the coalition that is growing in the general, which is millennials. Um, in Asa Hutchinson in Arkansas, it was Walmart that um, was banging on him because for them and in Indiana, it's a, just a commercial proposition. I mean, people were canceling trips to Indiana. Angie's List was canceling, I guess, doing business in Indiana. The NC2As the NCAA was thinking NCAA about was it. making noise. So, you know, floor. once the Chamber of Commerce is against you, you have to move. But also Asa Hutchinson said in his public remarks, he said his son had signed a petition against him, his father, the governor, signing it, which is there's a huge break in the Republican Party between those under 30 and those over in terms of same-sex but marriage. his son is not a Republican. Who aces? Yeah. But I'm just saying, I didn't know that. But Whit Ayers, who's the pollster for uh, Marco Rubio, said nobody under 30 is going to stick with you as a Republican Party if you're seen as against these issues. So if you look at the larger electorate in the general, those under 30, college-educated women, suburban women, those are people that Republicans are going to need to reach out to, and they won't if this becomes but, a defining thing for the party. But how do we, how do we, it, you know, we all know it's very clear now, like, where where we're going to be on marriage equality and- 50 years. How, as a society and through our laws, how do we acknowledge and and give people time to change? Not everyone moves as fast as as you do. That's a fantastic question. So what do we do? And how does the law account for it? Here's where I come down on this. And I really have been wrestling with it all week. I'm not sure this is the right answer, but let me try it out. So it seems like The reason for opposing new laws like this is the context in which they're passing and the way in which they are a kind of loaded weapon allowing for discrimination, refusal to serve gay couples, that is not in sync with the direction of equality and also can have some serious ramifications. I mean, the supporters of these laws always want to talk about the little old lady baking wedding cakes. But what about adoption agencies and landlords? Like there are real things at stake here. I feel like those are all really good reasons for opposing this version of a Religious Freedom Restoration Act. 
I'm not sure, though, that I think every gay couple denied service has to go sue. In other words, on a personal level, you know, so, for example, there's one pizzeria in Indiana where the owners went on TV and they said, look, like this, this is our religious belief. And they are now just being pilloried online that the inevitable pile up that happens, like people are trying to slam them on Yelp. And like now they're standing for religious bigotry. I just feel like really like this is they're not the source of evil in the world. And I would rather have a kind of a sort of like turn the other cheek attitude toward these small businesses, not one that means that we have to legally protect them. That just means that on an individual level, people would decide not to go after them. It's not really like a legal answer. It's just a social one. A little, you know, a little restraint is what really what you're yeah, talking about. That's what restraint. you're bringing to me. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting about the pizza, I wanted to bring this up because David mentioned the fast moving and fast pace of things. If you watch this story, first of all, Back to our previous point about legislation happening and getting fixed quickly. Like we we've never seen such a thing in Washington. Oh where my there's god, like it's a, amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but in part that's because of the speed of social media and the speed and power of things like uh, I mean, in this case, it's traditional power leverage when a company decides not to go to Indiana. So that's not that doesn't. But it's do like the combination, media, but, right, of the threats from the businesses plus the social media wildfire. Right, and that that wildfire, to pick up on your point, Emily, killed that poor pizzeria because okay, so the pizzeria is an openly Christian. They have. Um, they have you crosses, know, on, they the have crosses on the walls. And so what happens is a local news station goes like finds the one Christian place, puts the microphone in front of the woman's you know face and says they ask her about the law and she says, well, because of my belief. So it's not like she like the owner of the store took a big stand on this. She was there. No, the, she they asked like the went question. in and found right. the right. Exactly. And now For she her. becomes the like most hated person, you know, for the moment on in the rage machine on the Internet. And then there is the so now we've moved. So it moves to Yelp. This debate moves from social media to Yelp. And now there's a GoFund effort to because the pizzeria, I think, has now closed forever. There's now a GoFund oh. effort to give them money, which has which has raised by Thursday afternoon $187,000. So we've moved now Yelp to GoFund, which is the backlash against the backlash against the backlash. So it's like the backlash against the backlash against the backlash, which moves from social media outlet to social media outlet as it, you know, or not, not outlet, but um, whatever you want to call GoFund and Yelp. And that's all in like such a short period of time. Right. I think there's an interesting historic analogy, which I think I'm not sure what it tells us. But one of the things that happened in the civil rights movement, as we learned, you know, if you saw Selma, is is you have these legal changes that occur, and they're clearly social changes that are occurring, but there's government resistance and social resistance so that the civil rights movement moves so slowly. I mean, school, if you look at the story of school integration, you have Brown v. Board in 54. Yeah, all and, deliberate speed turned out to mean, like, sort of never yeah, or it became at least massive really, resistance. really <laughs> and so, took a long time. And so you can imagine if you're, if you're a civil rights activist concerned with marriage equality now, you would say, I'm going to be skeptical when states and the law and large entities are standing against marriage equality, because the history of this, the recent history of this in the United States, is they can really slow things down and, and stop the progress and make things slower than they should be. So there's a, there's a, you have to balance the, the ability to give people space to grow and change and develop new views with the need to actually cause those changes right. to take place too so it's it's not like it's totally yeah it's not to, you don't want to slow walk progress yeah but mostly this social change has taken place with just amazing rapidity and i i feel like what i keep hearing in the remarks by some religious conservatives on this topic is like but this isn't discrimination i and there's a way in which i think their framing is well i just don't want to participate in this gay wedding to me marriage is a christian sacrament this goes against my belief i just want to stay out of it and you know i think they're wrong that refusing to serve customers isn't a form of discrimination it is but you can see a way in which like there's just this gap in conceptualizing the issue. And and I imagine people on the other side of this must just feel like, wait a second, this was what everyone thought like yesterday. How yeah. did this change but, okay, so fast? But I want to get to, I want to interrogate this question of when is it okay to refuse to serve customers? Because I was thinking about this. So you would agree if a customer, you own a gun store and a customer comes to you and says, I'm going to buy this gun so I can murder my wife. You'd be like, I'm not going to sell you the gun. I'm sorry. If they literally told you that. 
Yeah, it, that's not like they're a protected category. No, that's not a protected category. <laughs> but then, you know, Nazi guy comes to your cake shop. Everyone's got a cake <laughs> shop. <laughs> but There's believe so many... me, the thing about Nazi guys they're is that they're mad for shop. cakes. They want swastikas they, on they, every they birthday They want a swastika cake. on their cake. Are you not entitled to not make the swastika? Are you, you are entitled to say no, legally speaking, right. because being a Nazi is not a, a category right. that we protect against discrimination. It's not race, religion, ethnicity, and now we are gradually adding sexual orientation to that list. Well, but being what about you know my, my or or you know my my Scientology cake? I want my Scientology cake. Well, then we get into whether Scientology so, is a religion or so, not. If so the state recognizes can, it as a religion, that counts. When when can you? If you have a business, when can you not serve people? Whenever they don't have shirts or shoes on. No, seriously. You cannot serve them whenever <laughs> you're That's the problem reason... with all the gay people getting married. They just don't. They're not wearing sh- shirts. <laughs> That's not true. They. <laughs> whenever your reason <laughs> for not you serving them is it. not about discriminating against them on the basis of a facet of identity that we have decided as a society is a form of discrimination we don't want to endorse. And we have a list, and gra- gradually, happily, sexual orientation is but on it's that not, list. But it's not on the list in Indiana. Well, right? It, right. It's it, so on the list in parts of the country and not others. It's on the list in Indianapolis and South Bend and Bloomington, but not the rest of Indiana. Right. So why can't you? If you're Well, in fact, you can. I mean, that is this weird irony underneath the fight over this law and the sort of singling out of Indiana as opposed to a bunch of other states where this is also true. Not to mention we don't have a federal anti-discrimination law that protects against discrimination broadly on the basis of sexual orientation. So the truth is that in Indiana, gay people are not protected um, if someone wants to fire them because they're gay. <laughs> and that's not going to change even after they fix this law. And so what it's funny, I feel like one of the things we have learned from the backlash against Indiana's law is that lots of people kind of think, assume that, of course, it's not okay to fire someone because they're gay. And maybe we sort of forgot to actually enact uh, (laughs) the legislation around the country that would provide for that. But it's sort of we've sort of arrived at that point socially before we did legally. And maybe the next thing this wave of activism should accomplish is actually backing for those bills, one of which is on the table in North Dakota. right? But Employment Non-Discrimination Act passed the Senate, right? Yeah, but it only uh, applies in certain circumstances, right? It's oh, not the kind I, of broad anti-discrimination that. Okay. provision that, yeah. So I think two things we can expect is, one, another outbreak along these lines before we get to the end of our election season. If for no other reason, then it is now in the it now advantages Democrats in a way that it used to advantage Republicans right. for many, many, many years to keep these events in the news and to um, sometimes perhaps even keep them in the news when the merits of the case don't necessarily suggest that it should be. So that'll be interesting to see if that um, happens a lot in our, you know, between now and the election. The Gaffist is sponsored by PBS presenting Wolf Hall. Sunday, oh my April God, 5th. I can't wait. Oh, that's 10, the best ever sponsor. We're all down for that one. We are literally dressed as they would be in the 15th century. Yeah. Right? 15th we wish we were. I saw that they have sponsor. I saw that yesterday. I saw that we had the sponsorship. I went home and put this on my DVR. Wolf Hall. What's the date? April. April 5th. Sunday, April 5th. Wolf Hall is based Ooh. on the best-selling book series by Hilary Mantel about political intrigue at the Tudor court. This historical drama for a modern audience revolves around Thomas Cromwell, the enigmatic and brilliant power broker who served Henry VIII. It stars Mark Rylance as Cromwell, Damian Lewis as Henry VIII, and Claire Foy as Anne Boleyn. Wolf Hall airs on Masterpiece on PBS Sunday, April 5th, 10 Eastern, 9 Central. Definitely not missing that. That's going to be so great. It is. If you haven't read that book, read it. And I, it's excellently visual, too, so I bet it'll be fantastic as a series. What I wished I had had with that book and what I tried to create on my own and failed miserably was just like a was it something to help? Like with Game of Thrones, something to help me. Who are all these characters right. and where's the dates and how is this timeline working? And but like, you could just go and read the real history, like Wikipedia, Thomas. But Cromwell, then you find out what happens to him. him yeah, but like, then, oh, but right, I want it. I want it in the right. I, yeah, I don't want I a see. spoiler special. I mean, it did happen six hundred <laughs> years ago, but still, I want or five hundred years ago. But I but want wait, you know. What was Anne Boleyn's fate? What did yeah, happen? No, to well, the yeah. Anne Boleyn, like I got that, but it's I don't know. I just felt like. <laughs> I needed a little uh, companion, I know exactly a little reader's guide, a little There's laminated. A, I think a lot of people felt that. 
Also, that book had a serious, like, proper noun, pronoun problem. Oh, was that really was so tell. great. It was so oh, hard. Oh, my God. That's what's she amazing. She fixed it in about. the second one, though, don't you think? I felt like the, what's it called, Bring Up the Bodies? I think it was better. I thought that, I so disagree with you. That part of the understanding who is speaking and how is so alienating and thus causes you to make do so much work and it makes the book so much richer. It's like I when I first read The Sound of the Fury, oh, you're like, wait, who is, what's, who's thinking? Whose right. head am I in? Right. Proving once again that you're better readers than I am. I wanted a little more help along the way. No, no, I'm not a better reader. I thought it was a book about race car driving and kung fu fights. I got no <laughs> idea what this book's about. All right, let's go to our, that was, that, we should just do that as a topic, man. Wolf Hall, wow. Anyway, PBS, you, you, you got your money's worth for that, PBS. <laughs> we are, every Gabfest listener, go watch that show. Okay, third topic, Harry Reid, 75-year-old Senate minority leader, Democrat from Nevada, will not, or do I, am I pronouncing it right? I can never remember. Nevada. 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 Whenever I say the state, someone criticizes me. Nevada won't run for re-election. He would have faced a very tough battle. He thought that the Republican establishment and fundraisers would spend a huge amount to try to defeat him. Probably they would have. And he, you know, he's had some health problems and he just wanted out. And he's a very bad candidate. And he's a bad candidate. Um, so <laughs> Oops, Chuck, Chuck Schumer too. of New York State will probably replace him in 2017 as a Democrat Senate leader. Reid is going out. He's taking credit for the stimulus, for Obamacare, for a lot of judicial appointments, uh, for having pushed Obama to run for president to begin with, I think. So let's just talk briefly about Reid. Does John, does he deserve credit for for these various achievements of the Obama presidency? I think he deserves, I think he really deserves credit. Well, credit's the wrong word. He is most directly responsible for the judicial appointments ending the threshold on filibusters, or lowering the threshold on filibusters for judicial appointments, which then led to a lot of people getting through and getting, um, you know, their nominations being approved. And so that is the thing over which he had the most control, exercised that control, and changed Senate tradition in a way that was like a big deal. All this other stuff, the role is less um, direct. And I think when you want to think about his legacy, I mean, he did warp and pervert the Senate and the ability of senators, even from his own party, to get amendments onto bills in a way that was really, um, and you hear Democrats complaining about it all the time, that was breathtaking, that is a part of and contributed to the sclerosis of the Senate. And so I think he's got, you know, marks against him as well as, uh, uh, or I should say, I think he's got those marks against him. It's sort of a weird double-edged sword kind of legacy, right? Where lowering the threshold for the filibuster, which I really promise myself to continue to support even when it means that a lot of really conservative judges get appointed, that made the Senate a more democratic body, right? It meant that there were fewer instances in which you know, a smaller number of senators, mostly from small states, could prevent stuff from happening. And yet the second attribute you were just talking about, his incredibly um, controlling attitude toward bills, made the Senate more autocratic. Yeah. And I guess I would say one other thing we should add to this was his extraordinary response when asked about, remember he went on the floor of the Senate and said basically Mitt Romney wasn't releasing his tax returns because yeah, and that he hadn't was paid wrong. them. Totally wrong. Like asked about it recently. He was like, his answer was, well, he didn't win, did he? <laughs> which was which is really appalling. That's that's so that's you know I mean he was no nobody ever said he was a choir boy. In fact, one of the um, fascinating things about him is just how tough and relentlessly tough he was. And the, and I love this anecdote that he, he ran twenty marathons, and because marathons themselves weren't I guess challenging enough to that sense of like constant grinding progress, he tried to run at least one of them without taking any water. Yeah. Um, Ugh. And and I also like that at one point, he, like when he was gambling commissioner in Nevada, was it one of the mob guys who was trying to bribe him? He put him at a chokehold. Yeah, like yeah. he's a he on, he's yeah. a tough he's a tough. And mother. he punched his father-in-law. Yeah, into a fist fight with him. That's yeah. another good one. Yeah. Why? So the Senate is filled with with people who love to talk with your John Kerry types, your Lindsey Graham types, in, your Chuck Schumer types. In in Reed and in McConnell, you have two super grinders, guys who. Who have who don't have any obvious charisma, but who are who've made it? Why? How? how why did they make it? I, mean, I guess they're willing to do the dirty work. Is that why? It's a really good question. I think they're different people. Um, 
So the Reed story is that he really took care of his members, that he had the patience and diligence and focus to take care of what his members needed. And so when Daschle fell, Reed was there, much, much the same way this is happening with Schumer. When Daschle fell and was, was defeated by John Thune, Reed was ready to call people and say, not like, oh, hey, I'll do this for you in the future. It's, you know, I have been there for you. And, uh, and then he just maintained that. And that was true, apparently, especially among the female senators. And I think Schumer, having been the chairman of the DS, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee in a successful year, also has those kinds of relationships and can deliver in that kind of way. Is it bad for the Democrats that Schumer is perceived as being in the pocket of Wall Street? I think it's good for Democrats and a party when your majority leader, or minority leader in this case, is in a pretty unassailable seat. Because um, one of the reasons, I mean, Reid barely won last time to a candidate. Right, Republicans to, like, will tell you now are crazy. And, you know, Mitch McConnell ended up having a pretty easy race, but he didn't in his primary. I mean, or he was worried enough in his primary to do. So it'll be interesting to see what and how that changes the dynamic if they can if if and Schumer also is uh Schumer's interesting cuz Schumer like he wants to make stuff happen like he he's almost like what we were saying about the Iraq deal it's I'm sorry the Iran deal it's like sometimes you get the sense that it's like he just wants to make things happen and and just cuz they're happening that's progress um so i just wonder if it'll be more active and interesting he's obviously an incredible partisan but i think he also kind of likes to get things moving and that'll be interesting to watch do you, last question on this john there there was you know mutterings and fantasies on the left this that this is a moment for elizabeth warren to step up into leadership was there anything to that i think the, the mutterings and fantasies about the things that elizabeth warren can and will do are becoming themselves a thing. I mean, so there's the mutterings <laughs> and fantasies about a rape for president. She's going to be in, re- she's in Democratic Live. leadership. Right, exactly. She's yeah, releasing she, an album she, secretly. She's recorded right, at midnight. Exactly. Yes, she's right. She's starring in the she, next Disney movie. Yes, she tries. Peter, she, Pan, Peter Pan Live with she, Elizabeth Warren. She chalks, <laughs> she chalks her pool cue with the dust of unicorn horns. It's, you know, she's got a lot of that's, um, that surrounds her. Um, no, I don't think that was... Um, also, by the way, you know, minority leader got to go like travel a lot and raise a bunch of money like with Wall Street guys. So that doesn't it doesn't hurt the party and the people running if they have a lot of money flowing in. And you need to be a little less um, upright about your hatred for big money when you need to raise big money. One other thing I would say, which is kind of extraordinary. Well, it would be extraordinary if you took it seriously. Was Chuck <laughs> Schumer after the last election said that focusing on passing the Affordable Care Act was yeah. a huge political mistake, and he's now the Republican, the Democratic leader in the Senate? Like, which is why I always thought that original thing was a kind of a phony move, anyway. But so, um, but what? Tell I was thinking about that and wondering why. I remembered you said it was a phony move, and I don't understand how that plays into this moment. Why was that like a smart thing for him to do strategically? Because he was trying to make a big noise and and sort of present himself as the person who could explain the future, how Democrats should go forward in the future. So he was saying, Obamacare fixation bad should have focused on income inequality middle-class wage stagnation, all these other issues. If he just said that by itself, he would have sounded like every other person on the planet, including Republicans. But if he says this signature achievement of the Obama administration was a mistake, then everybody covers it. And he get and he's seen as this kind of active visionary on the on behalf of these bedrock democratic principles. Um, so that's not a bad place to be in. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're in Searchlight, Nevada. Looking for a drink, looking for Harry Reid and a drink. John Dickerson, what are you going to chatter about? Well, as we turn to spring, um, and I'm a bit— Oh, please, please. Uh, that was Emily turning that, to spring. Turning to spring. Begging. She's trying, begging. Me begging spring. for spring. It's me begging. Spring, please come. Yeah, and and so I, uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a—I think I get this from my mom. I'm, I'm a bit—I like the birds in the backyard. So we have a couple of bird feeders, the uh, droll Yankee bird feeders that have the little spinning mechanisms of— Squirrels jump on it. They get thrown off. So I like the birds. I'm a fan of the birds. So apparently it has been discovered that the black pole warbler songbird, which is from New England, which weighs 4.2 ounces, is about the size of a tennis ball, can indeed, and this was apparently a huge like 50-year-long mystery, this bird can fly from New England 
to South America. That's 1,700 miles without landing because it's over water. It's over the Atlantic Ocean. And they basically figured this out by by creating tiny little backpacks. I don't know whether they were double strapping or single strapping the backpacks, but the little backpack flight recorders attached to 40 of the birds tracked them as they flew. And they've known for a while that big birds like the albatross could um, fly long distances, but they could kind of glide. But when you're that, when you're teeny tiny like that, you have got to be working it to get you know, and there's nowhere to land. There's no, like, little post you but can hang out on. How bad would they have felt if, like, the weight of the backpack had just <laughs> yes. taken those birds down? They would have concluded, well, <laughs> the birds can't make it. It must have been super, super weightless, that backpack. Totally it mass. It must have weighed, like, a teeny, 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 tiny. Yeah, amount. mass suicide off the coast of, you know, Carolinas. as <laughs> The poor birds couldn't struggle with the backpack on. Imagine, if they didn't have the backpack on, they could, who knows how far they could go. Exactly. like... 2,400 miles. They made it to Rio, and they just they really, really wanted to get down to Patagonia. That is an awesome question, although I present here for the, uh, yeah, the, for the jury that the backpack is pretty damn small. If that yeah, bird is the size of it, no, sure. But how much weight is it? Relative weight. weight. Yeah, no, little birds. I don't know. There was a, there's a song about little birds, but it's escaping me at the moment. Um, Three little birds uh, woke yeah. up this morning, and you smiled at the rising sun. Oh, Good. That's always nice to get David uh, quoting from something. He's got one of those good memories where he can just quote from stuff. I can't so even remember. Um, anyway, I also didn't know that the albatrosses were known for their ultra long flights because I always think of the albatross as something that is hung around your neck. But if it can yeah, fly really, for a really long distance, funny. I'd want it around my neck. Well, it's right? an, it meets you in the open ocean. Oh, that's right. How, that's how, that's it how it. sandpipers and gulls, also, by the way, are your long distance flying birds if you're looking for that kind of thing. Long haul. John must be like wanting to go on some very exotic long voyage right now. You just did. So I know. Now, chatter. I am reading a really intriguing book called How to Be Both by Ali Smith. It's hey, a book we're talking about Hannah's on the Slate Audio Book Club next month. Did you read it? No, Hannah's reading it. I know, because of this on the book club. And Han and I, around the same moment, discovered that there are actually two versions of this book out there in the world. So uh, now I'm thinking about that, along with how I feel about the book. Um, The first, it's written in two halves, and the first half of it I loved, and now I'm part of the way into the second half. So I recommend it. It's it's interesting, and I'm looking forward to talking about it. How to Be Both by L.A. Smith. All right. I am going to chatter... Briefly, just about rage, about my rage, which is that I now spend half my week up in New York, and part of that involves... I watched this happen on Twitter. It was quite a sight to behold. I felt for you. It was just unspeakable. Wait, what happened? I, I have to, so I have to commute. So first from Penn Station to the Atlas Obscura office in Greenpoint. Greenpoint's very hard to get to, those of you who are not from New York. It's a part of New York, which is difficult. It's a neighborhood in Brooklyn. It's a little bit cut off from everything. And then from Greenpoint out to my in-laws in Queens, which is where I... Uh, spend my evenings when I'm when I'm in New York. The New York subway is just terrible. I don't all this whole everyone everyone from New York is always coming to Washington and making fun of the DC subway and talking about how What's lame it is. What's wrong with it? It, it takes does not take forever. you forever. It takes for it is constantly delayed. I would say that the trains I take are delayed three days out of four. It took me two hours to get from Greenpoint to the place in Queens I was trying to go, which I could have walked faster. I could have walked. What were you on the faster. M? I was on the, the, the E. I was on the G the and the E. The E, the E train was. It's it's unspeakable, and I don't. I I'm sick. You New Yorkers, you're just always lording it over DC and telling us how much better your city is. I'm done with that. I'm done with it. It is not true. The DC Metro has had lots of problems. We're constantly killing people with it. It is delayed, but <laughs> there's bad. a there's a fashion of New York delay, which is different and more frustrating and worse than anything I've ever experienced in DC by far. So, New Yorkers. You can tell me that I'm wrong, but I won't listen to you. It's infuriating. It's infuriating. He is in a he is right in now a in a rage right now. I, I mean, listened to an entire podcast between two stations. An entire twenty three wow. minute podcast. Instead of taking the E next time, you should take the F flat. Mm. Or you should go to Singapore or Hong Kong. Their subways are amazing. Thanks. Thank you both for this extremely useful <laughs> advice. That'll get you to Queens really fast. Our intern is Tarek Barrett. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Someone was asking me about the Pandemonium Network, the Panda Network. It's Panoply. How do you spell that? 
We no longer have to spell it, John. <laughs> I know, I know. Our show we page is slate.com slash gabfest. Uh, it has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. And our Twitter feed is at slategabfest. Email address is gabfest at slate.com. And you can subscribe to the Gabfest in iTunes. Leave a comment and rating while you're there, please. It helps us. Uh, for what? Who is it? John Dickerson <laughs> and Emily Bazelon. I'm David Plotz. We'll see you next week in New York. Those of you who are coming to the live show, it's going to be fun. Don't take the subway. You'll never get there. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>